Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. In today's Courthouse Steps decision webinar, we discuss determining finality for pursuing liability, the implications of Thompson v. Clark. My name is Jenny Mahoney, and I am Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them using the Q&A feature located at the bottom of the screen so that our speakers will have access to them when we get to that portion of the webinar. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Mark Levin, Chief Policy Counsel for the Council on Criminal Justice and Senior Advisor for Right on Crime, who will introduce today's panelists. With that, thank you for being with us today. Mark, the floor is yours. Yes, thank you for joining us. And um, we look forward to having a very full and balanced discussion of Thompson v. Clark, as well as the implications of this recent decision by the Supreme Court. For background, in, in Thompson v. Clark, the plaintiff brought us, uh, sought to bring a civil lawsuit claiming he was the victim of a wrongful seizure after police allegedly entered his apartment without a warrant uh, based on what turned out to be unsubstantiated allegations of child abuse. Uh, Thompson was charged with resisting arrest amid this warrantless raid uh, but prosecutors subsequently elected to drop uh, this criminal charge against him. Then the question that arose was whether this result, the dropping of the charges, though short of a formal uh, exoneration, uh, was sufficient to meet the requirement that there be a favorable conclusion of the criminal case against Thompson before he could pursue his civil suit against the police for this um, uh, seizure. So one of the reasons this case has attracted considerable interest is the interesting 6-3 lineup on the court um, and uh, the decision centers were perhaps unsurprisingly Alito and Thomas, but also Gorsuch, who's often ruled in favor of criminal defendants and is some, something of a civil libertarian, which also meant, of course, that uh, the, the majority opinion included both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The What I'd like to do when we turn it over to the two panelists I'll introduce momentarily is talk a little bit initially about the facts of the case, including the fact that there's a real person uh, involved is in all Supreme Court cases, although I guess some involve corporations, but a person who really faced a very difficult circumstance and was seeking relief. Uh, but uh, the question then becomes whether this is a case of bad facts making bad laws, some critics would say, or whether this is a welcome decision because it lowers a procedural hurdle to holding government accountable. Um, and then beyond the facts of the case, we're really going to look towards the implications for the future. On the one hand, some may be concerned that prosecutors may be more reluctant to drop cases. Um, how does this intersect with qualified immunity? And then perhaps really importantly, if the dissenters have prevailed, what's the alternative? Could the suit have ever proceeded? And if so, how? Um, so these are some really interesting questions and we have two perfect people to uh, help us answer them because they were both um, authors or co-authors of amici briefs on different sides of this case. Uh, first, we have Marie Miller, who's an attorney with the Institute, of Just Institute for Justice, a nonprofit public interest litigation group focusing on economic liberty, property rights, and school choice. Uh, she received her law degree from Indiana's University's Mauer School of Law. Uh, she holds an undergraduate degree in music from the University of Notre Dame, uh, where our second panelist, Vincent Stark, graduated law school, interestingly enough. And uh, after law school, Marie clerked for Chief Justice Loretta Rush of the Indiana Supreme Court and for Judge Michael S. Kane of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. 
Also joining us is Vincent Stark, Assistant District Attorney in the Albany County, New York District Attorney's Office, where he's uh, worked since April 2013. Um, and um, he also was uh, served in the, in the New York State Senate as a Senate Fellow in the Office of Toby Ann Stavisky. Uh, he, as I mentioned earlier, graduated from Notre Dame Law School and prior to that uh, was an undergraduate, received his degree from political science from Syracuse University. So with that, um, uh, Marie, let me turn it to you first to just give our audience who may not have been uh, closely following uh, this case uh, a little bit of background of the facts that led up to it. And um, then, of course, hopefully uh, feel free to move on to um, what IJ urged and what the court held. And then we'll turn it over to Vincent. And actually, Vincent, if you have something to add on the facts before, you know, um, kind of going into the rest of your initial presentation, feel free to do that. Um, Marie, take it away. Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, so Larry Thompson was a Navy veteran and a longtime U.S. postal worker, and he and his then fiance were at home uh, one night getting ready for bed, and they had a one week old newborn baby girl. And also living with them was uh, Larry's fiance's sister, uh, so his now sister-in-law, who had some cognitive delays. And that person saw the baby cry when Larry would change her diaper, and she saw some red marks on the baby's bottom as well. And the, those marks turned out to just be diaper rash, but uh, this the sister-in-law uh, mistook them for abuse, and she called 911. Um, EMTs showed up, and Larry addressed them at his doorway and said, I don't know what you're talking about. No one here called 911. Um, of course, he, he was not aware that his sister-in-law had called. And the EMTs saw the baby girl in her mother's arms on the couch, um, safe, and they left the doorway and then met four uh, police officers who showed up. And they told the police officers, we saw the baby, um, we think we need to examine her, uh, we think we're required to do that. And so the police officers went to the door, Larry Thompson answered, he again said, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know who you might be looking for, but it's not, it's not us. Um, and if you want to come in, you need a warrant. Um, you know, I, I'd like to speak with your, your supervisor. They said, no, uh, you're not speaking with our supervisor. Uh, we're not getting a warrant. Um, and eventually they tackled him to the floor. And um, all because he would not allow them entrance to his home without a warrant. Um, they examined the baby, took the baby to the hospital. And sure enough, the marks on her body were simply diaper rash. The police officers uh, arrested Larry Thompson, and he was held in jail for, I believe, about 36 hours. Um, during the time that he was in jail, uh, one of the police officers uh, wrote up a report um, that uh, Larry Thompson alleged fabricated fabricated the story uh, to make it look like he had resisted um, resisted the police in their unlawful entry into his home. Then a prosecutor used that fabricated evidence to bring charges against, against Larry, uh, again, while he was still in custody in jail. And ultimately, the prosecutor dismissed the case without any explanation. And the judge in the case also um, 
did not give any explanation for the dismissal of the criminal case. Um, later, Larry brought a civil lawsuit against the officer for bringing, uh, for causing him to be unreasonably seized because of the fabricated story that the officer uh, provided to the prosecutor. Ultimately, the Second Circuit decided that Larry Thompson could not proceed with that Fourth Amendment claim because he could not show that the criminal prosecution against him ended with some kind of indication of his innocence of the charges brought. And the Second Circuit was one of seven circuits to have this kind of an affirmative indications of innocence rule. The only other circuit to address whether this um, requirement exists for an unreasonable seizure claim based on lawful process was the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit said, no, you do not need to show that your criminal case ended in a way showing your innocence, you just need to show that it ended in a way consistent with innocence, meaning that you just need to show that it ended without a conviction. The Supreme Court took the case to resolve the split and ultimately decided that the minority rule should prevail. You know, the 11th Circuit's rule that a criminal case ends uh, in favor of the defendant, meaning he can bring this so-called malicious prosecution claim if the criminal case ends without a conviction or without some um, concession of, of guilt in a plea agreement. Um, so that's that's a, a rundown of, of the case. Um, the Institute for Justice, um, my organization, filed a, an amicus brief urging the court to adopt the 11th Circuit's position. And we, we urged the court to do that because the Second Circuit's affirmative indications of innocence rule really had no basis in the common law history of Section 1983, um, under which this kind of claim arises. It, it also um, has no support in the text of Section 1983. Um, so we were urging the court to adopt the 11th Circuit's rule uh, to provide a stable rule of law um, to govern these kinds of claims. Um, and ultimately, the court, the court did, did adopt that position. So, uh, Vincent, uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for, for your opening remarks and additions to, to the factual situation. Sure. Thank you, Marie. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you for inviting me. In terms of uh, the statement of facts, I think the rundown's fairly accurate. I think the, the one maybe uh, friendly amendment I'd make is that there were a couple of um, court claims that were made. Uh, in addition to just the malicious prosecution tort um, that went to trial and uh, the did not succeed on those ones. I'm trying to remember, uh, Marie might might remember them off the top of her head, but uh, I think unlawful imprisonment was one of them, a false arrest, I think. There, there are a few, you know, again, Fourth Amendment sort of sounding in the Fourth Amendment, uh, 1983 actions that the plaintiff did not succeed on, um, all related to this same series of events. But what gets to the court is, in fact, as as Marie said, this sort of narrow issue related to affirmative indications of innocence, whether or not affirmative indications of innocence really matters. Now, why is the District Attorneys Association in the state of New York interested in something like that? Um, I, I can tell you all here and I, I don't speak for DASNY, obviously, 
but I did speak for them in this brief. We're not all that interested in the common law history in 1871 that we're that we want to be heard on at. Um, what we're really interested in is what does that mean for today? What does that mean for district attorneys going forward at this time? Um, and when we looked at the briefs at uh, at the time that had been filed, we already had I already had access to the um, appellant's brief. And I already had access to, I think, all the amicus briefs that had been filed uh, in uh, favor of the appellant. Um, I had Marie's uh, excellent brief, but uh, and I think about a baker's dozen more. But the one that we were most interested in from our perspective was one filed by a group of former prosecutors and judges in favor of the uh, appellant. Um, mostly former federal prosecutors who said that this was uh, something that they didn't want to be in business of. And they thought that the, the majority rule um, from the Second Circuit led to perverse incentives for prosecutors to sort of get involved in essentially civil prosecutions. And we had a different perspective when we discussed it as an organization. We said, actually, we think the perverse incentive would be if this majority rule were um, dispensed with. And so what we wanted to do, you know, when, when you're writing an amicus brief in our, in my thought and, and in Basney's thought was we didn't just want to rehash what everybody else was saying. Everybody else is arguing about the his, history of the common law uh, torts in 1871. We thought that we could provide some context to that. Um, and that's why in, in my amicus, we go into an awful lot of detail about the historical development of district attorneys, which prior to about 1800, we didn't have public prosecutors in the United States. And by about 1900, public prosecutors are everywhere. So. In 1871, you're still very much in that sort of developmental phase of public prosecutors replacing private prosecutions, even in the criminal realm. That's important, one, because most of the malicious prosecution case law in 1871 is really related to private prosecutions. And so I don't know that it really ports all that well into the modern world. Um, two, private or public prosecutors at that time throughout most of the country executed something called nolle prosequi. Um, it still exists in some states. Marie can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it still exists in Indiana. Um, and it was abolished in New York sometime around 1890 uh, because nolle prosequi as it existed then was thought to be uh, easily uh, abused by unscrupulous prosecutors. So nolle prosequi would mean that um, Mr. Levin, we could file a charge against you and then dismiss it, but then we could refile the charge anytime we wanted. So dismissal didn't really mean the end of case, which is probably why uh, there was so much argument in these in these briefs back and forth about well, what did it really mean for a case to end in 1871? Just because a case was dismissed in some in some sense didn't really mean the case was over. And that's why there was so much question as to what it meant to be over. So that was part of what we were doing there. And the other part was to just talk about the realities of prosecution today. In a, in a sense, I, I was kind of thinking that the case would shake out sort of in the way that it did, which is that there would be one arm of the court that would be um, willing to continue 
looking at Section 1983 by looking at common law in 1871 um, and trying to read malicious prosecution that tort into the Fourth Amendment. But I kind of figured it would be Justice Thomas, actually, who wrote the opinion. He always has very interesting, uh, thought-provoking opinions that look say, are we abstracting too much um, from the text of the Fourth Amendment? Can we really read in malicious prosecution, some tort into the Fourth Amendment? Are we grafting something onto it that doesn't exist? And in fact, we got Alito, Thomas, and uh, Gorsuch. Um, we see that a lot in constitutional criminal procedure. Probably the number one example is the Miranda rule, right? Where exactly does that come from? Uh, I was actually thinking about that a, a few days ago when I when I read this opinion and I said, I wonder if, if Dickinson, which of course famously reaffirmed Miranda, was re-argued today, would we have three votes instead of two to overrule Miranda? I, I think maybe those would be the three likely votes. That's probably here, neither here nor there. But I figured we might have a group that would say, um, you know, at the Fourth Amendment has nothing to do with malicious prosecution. You might have a group that says, you know, we're going to look to the common law. And the group that I was really writing for was maybe Elena Kagan and um, uh, Stephen Breyer, people who are very concerned about the purposes and the realities of the law today. Um, and are, are a lot more concerned about the common law today than they are about the common law in 1871. Um, so that's sort of what we were trying to do in our amicus brief. And uh, I don't think it had very, very much effect at all on how the court came out. Is uh, Maybe I failed. I don't know. But uh, it was uh, it was interesting to write either way. So I, I guess that's all I have to say in terms of my introduction. Thanks. Well, and Marie, you didn't really get too much beyond the facts in terms of discussing the, um, you know, the legal approach that your brief advocated and how you interpreted the court's ruling. And then uh, so I wanted to turn over to you to discuss that. And then I'd, I'd love for Vincent maybe to address if the court had ruled, uh, if the minority had been the majority and your position had prevailed, when could uh, someone uh, like the plaintiff here bring their malicious prosecution suit, if ever, uh, who is in similarly situated. But let me turn it over to you, Marie, first. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And, and thanks, Vincent, um, for, for your thoughts. Uh, to, to focus a little more on what our brief was advocating, um, we were really looking at what the basis for such a favorable termination indications of innocence rule could be. And we were concerned that simply looking at policy reasons for that rule um, would create an unstable rule of law and one that created different rules across the nation. Um, and, and in fact, among the seven circuits who had addressed this question and decided that um, some, some form of indication of innocent innocence um, was required, had already developed some different approaches to their tests. And um, for example, the Second Circuit um, would look to see if defendant had raised certain constitutional defenses, um, like a speedy trial right. Um, and if if a case was dismissed on that ground, then it, it would be considered a favorable termination, but not on other grounds. The Tenth Circuit took a different approach, looking more at the totality of the circumstances. So what we saw was these different circuits 
developing their indication of innocence rules on an ad hoc basis, just based on whatever case came before the court, um, figuring out how to apply this this rule. Um, and really, the rule raises a lot of questions like how how much evidence do you need to show um to show that you were innocent of the, the charges brought against you? How should a court determine what kind of evidence is relevant? Um, should many trials basically take place to determine the basis for a dismissal of criminal charges? Something similar to that happened in Larry Thompson's case. Um, a, a hearing was held to try to figure out what was the basis for the dismissal. And that that process itself has some problems in invading um, the decision making of of prosecutors and the executive branch overall. So we saw that this this indications of innocence rule or rules, each circuit had their own, um, was quite mercurial. And and if it was just based on these freewheeling policy decisions by judges, then we're going to end up with um, just inconsistent laws across the nation, in, inconsistent requirements for holding government officials accountable when they have violated constitutional rights. And so we were looking at these rules and thinking, you know, what, why, why should these rules be permitted to go off in all different directions when the common law and the purpose and text of section 1983 provides such a solid foundation for a single rule that applies across the whole nation that's easy to apply. And so we urged the court to, to go that route um, in the interest of um, making, making the rule of law stable. Um, and we analogized um, the, the problem with the indication of innocence rule to how qualified immunity has developed. Qualified immunity initially was at least ostensibly based on the common law. And then the court um, took quite a turn away from the common law um, in its modern qualified immunity jurisprudence. And now it is essentially not based at all in the common law um, and has has taken on a life of its own. And so we were warning the court, you know, don't don't let something like that happen in this uh, favorable termination requirement for malicious prosecution claims. And, and so uh, that, that was the focus of, of our brief. Yeah. And uh, before I turn it over to Vincent to ask the previous question I said about what the alternative remedy would be, I just wanted to ask you, do you have any concern that this will lead to prosecutors perhaps, I guess, keeping, not acknowledging that someone was innocent or keeping a case alive, extending it uh, to, I guess, the person's, the uh, individual's statute of limitations and their civil suit could run if the prosecutor kept just uh, extending the case? Do you have any concern about any uh, unintended consequences? Um, I don't think those concerns are outweigh the concern with prosecutors initially bringing charges um, with the understanding that bringing the charge and then dismissing the case can shield government officials from civil suit in the first place. So I, I think if, if there is concern about um, the reasons for dismissing or not dismissing a case, um, they're, they're equal to um, or less than any concerns that existed under the indication of innocence rule, creating an incentive for, for prosecutors to possibly bring charges um, that 
were baseless um, and then dismissing them to to simply shield uh, government officials. Now that that would would offend their ethical obligations, I think, probably everywhere across the country. But that doesn't mean that we should have these incentives in in the legal framework um, and the fabric that that we have um, incentives for prosecutors to do something wrong. Um, our, our legal legal fabric should encourage prosecutors to to abide by their ethical obligations. And again, you could say, it, well, now we're just trading that off um, for for a point in time later in the criminal proceeding for whether to keep a case that's already been brought or to, whether to dismiss it. I, I suppose time will tell, but there are additional safeguards um, that, that prevent um, this floodgates of uh, of civil lawsuits from opening. Um, and, and so prosecutors shouldn't be worried about you know, a whole bunch of civil cases coming as a result of this, this decision. Uh, first of all, civil litigants will have to prove that the criminal prosecution lacked probable cause to begin with. Um, and, and so if uh, that, that's a huge requirement that a, a civil litigant will have to show that it, there was no probable cause, that alone will will prevent um, a floodgate scenario. And second, litigants will have to overcome qualified immunity in a lot of cases. Um, and, and qualified immunity, as we know, is, is a huge hurdle to overcome. So I, I don't think that the consequences of this decision would be any worse uh, than of the opposite decision. In fact, the uh, the opposite decision, um, you know, if, if affirmative indications of innocence were required, um, would effectively close the door on many meritorious civil lawsuits. Um, it would prevent people uh, like Larry Thompson from being able to, to get through the courthouse door. Uh, and it also would create a strange uh, disparity between similar cases. And Justice Kavanaugh touched on this a little bit. Um, and I believe the, the federal prosecutors, the former prosecutors brief touched on this some as well, where a, a criminal defendant whose case was very weak and so warranted dismissal uh, might be blocked from bringing a civil lawsuit. But a defendant whose case went all the way through trial was found guilty and then had his guilty conviction or his conviction overturned on direct appeal would be able to bring uh, a civil case. And so in the second scenario, um, the, the criminal case was much stronger against him, and yet he would be able to bring a civil lawsuit. Whereas in the first scenario, the case could be very weak, and yet the defendant would be precluded from bringing a civil case. So that creates a, a strange, um, illogical uh, disparity of treatment um, under the law, um, uh, under the indications of innocence rule that the Second Circuit and other circuits adopted. Well, Vincent, let me give you a chance to respond to that and then secondly answer the, the question of what could Mr. Thompson, would he ever be able to pursue any remedy had the court uh, majority uh, held the other way? Yeah, let me see if I can do that in reverse order because it'll be fast. Uh, yes, I, I think so. If the dissent had won, you'd said if, if my side had won out, I want to be clear. If the dissent had won, I 
I would have lost on that, that theory too. I, I lose either way. Um, but if the dissent had won out, yeah. And, and Justice Alito uh, uh, addresses this in section 1A of his brief. He says you could do an unreasonable seizure theory under the Fourth Amendment, section 1983. He says there you need a seizure that's unreasonable, which in, in the case of a full arrest is w- without probable cause. And in a way, this is actually would be... Um, easier for a defendant to defend a plaintiff to bring in certain circumstances right because in some in some circumstances you can have a, a seizure that is short of a full-blown arrest like in a every stop situation or something of that nature it's one of the things i talk about with my with my paralegal students sometimes is well, how do you sue somebody when you're stopped briefly for a few minutes i i guess you can but what are the damages uh, Justice Alito, in some ways, would would actually create a rule that would be even easier, and I think it would be preferable from my perspective, and I'm guessing from the perspective of most prosecutors, because it would take us entirely out of it. We have nothing to do with the arrest. Uh, it would it would put it right where it should be on on the person who's doing the arrest. Um, as far as that first question goes. I mean, obviously, that's our concern is how does this affect uh, prosecutors? Um, would it would it incentivize a prosecutor to continue a prosecution that he knows there is no probable cause for? Uh, I think the answer to that is no. Certainly no prosecutors I know. Certainly no prosecutors I would want to know. That would be uh, a clear violation of our ethics and uh, I don't think that we need, um, you know, a civil suit to stop us from doing that. Um, you know, we, we have our ethics uh, boards in every state that we, we could have a license full day. But also, you know, I do think we're typically pretty ethical people. Um, what I'm actually con- a lot more concerned about is does it incentivize us to not dismiss cases against people who, who we think are guilty? Right. Who there's where there's probable cause and frankly, where the evidence is pretty good. And that's a lot of what I spoke about in my amicus um, you know, sort of pulling the curtain back here. Um, I had a whole extra few paragraphs uh, in my first draft that we decided to take out where I kind of gamed out that possibility of, well, what happens if. If the affirmative, uh, affirmative indications of innocence standard does not win the day. And in my mind, I said, well, we might dismiss fewer cases, um, which would have some bad consequences for us in the sense that um, we're already overworked, right? Uh, and we already have uh, not enough resources. And sometimes we're dismissing cases just as part of triage. It's also not so good for defendants who maybe were dismissing, you know, lower level crimes, I would think. And or two, maybe we're um, insisting in certain circumstances on them waiving a future civil action, which is not unethical. Um, I, I looked into that very hard for this brief. It's not unethical. It's I do think ethically fraught, however, and it's certainly uncomfortable. And it's certainly I don't think something that any prosecutor needs for a possible civil uh, civil case in the future. That said, what I was trying to grapple with is going forward, will 
do you have to, to some degree, if you think that there's a possibility, remember every time we dismiss something now, it's technically possibly a federal case. Um, and if you know that you don't believe the police have done anything wrong and just standing up in court and saying, I'm dismissing this, you know, to be a nice guy, there's probable cause in my view, isn't enough to stop it anymore, right? Because the affirmative ind indications of innocence doesn't matter. Um, and our first obligation, according to our ethics, says that we have a, a duty to the truth. Is it good for justice to dismiss a case knowing that that could result in a federal lawsuit? Now, granted, to Ms. Miller's point, uh, yeah, it's not going to be a, a lawsuit that has much chance of success. But you can still get through the courthouse door. Right? Maybe they're not going to be able to prove that there wasn't a probable cause. Um, but for the same reason that nobody likes being accused of a crime where there's not probable cause, nobody likes getting sued when there's not enough to, to really get past pleading stages. Um, it costs cities money. It ties up police that might have to go and, and testify or, or be opposed. It is going to probably result in more uh attorneys having to be hired by cities. And ultimately, if it's an edge case, there's going to be some sort of small settlement. What is our duty to justice? Uh, do, do we have to play a little bit of defense or a little bit of goalie? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. And all of us in DASNY didn't know the answer to that either. And I want to say, I don't speak for, really, I don't speak for DASNY. I don't even speak for the DA in Albany County when I say that, other than to say, I think we all have to really consider that question really seriously now going forward. There's one of us, one DA in Albany County, there's 62 in, in the state of New York, there's something close to 5,000 nationwide. And if you want to talk about a patchwork, I think there might be a patchwork. And, and that's going to be the ultimate question is, is, do the courthouse gates flood open? Is there a lot more litigation? If there isn't, this will be a big nothing burger. And if there is a lot more litigation, it, it will change how prosecutors do business for better or for worse. Let me just follow up. So at the, um, at the beginning, is what you're saying then if the uh, dissent by Justice Alito had prevailed, that you think that someone like Mr. Thompson could have pursued a wrongful seizure claim against the police, but that he couldn't have pursued the malicious prosecution claim that, that someone who had um, the case dropped like he did would not be able to pursue a malicious prosecution claim against prosecutors? Well, certainly not against prosecutors. I don't think they can pursue it against prosecutors anyway because of the absolute immunity. Uh, that's the... Um, Imbler case. Um, but yeah, as, as I read uh, Justice Alito's dissent, he didn't believe in the malicious prosecution Fourth Amendment tort at all. Um, he had a, a different theory under, under which a malicious prosecutor, well, under, under which a Fourth Amendment tort could be pursued uh, pursuant to Section 1983. In some ways, I actually think that it was uh, one, it fits the Fourth Amendment a little bit better. And two, I actually think it's a little bit um, easier for defendants to or plaintiffs to make out. Well, uh, we have it open for a question. So let's turn to that in just a minute as soon as we get some audience and we already have some uh, questions and comments. But um, I wanted to switch back to you, Marie, to respond to that. But also I had a, a question <clears throat> for potentially for both of you, which is 
what would happen when there's multiple, uh, let's say there was uh, someone pulled over for speeding for something and then there was another charge and only they were guilty of the speeding, but the other was, you know, evidence was fabricated by law enforcement or, or uh, exculpatory evidence was hidden by prosecutors. So there's some wrongdoing on the other charge, uh, but they're not, uh, but they were guilty of the more minor uh, charge. What, how would this uh, play out? Um, I think I can kind of respond to both uh, at the same time. Um, one thing that I think kind of got glossed over a little bit in the court's opinion um, was the requirement that the um, unlawful initiation of charges had to has to be proven to have caused um, a seizure. Um, th- that causation element is also a, a requirement that the civil plaintiff will have to overcome. Um, and, and so in Larry Thompson's case, he will have to show that he was detained um, because legal process was begun against him and that that legal process was based on the fabrication um, of the story by the police officer. So that that is another huge hurdle for civil plaintiffs to overcome. And for your example about um, you know if there are multiple charges and one is uh, dismissed but another is not, if if I'm understanding your your hypothetical correctly, uh, again there is going to have to be this causation element shown where a person was seized because of um, the unlawful initiation of legal process, meaning um, that the charge was brought without probable cause. And that because of that, the the now civil plaintiff was was seized. So regardless of what charges are brought, that is that that causation is going to have to be shown. Uh, Vincent, did you want to address that, too? Yeah, no, just to jump in on the the idea of a, of a seizure, I think it was one of the background issues in the case that was certainly glossed over uh, here. And I think it was an interesting uh, issue from our perspective. We didn't we didn't brief it. Um, but what exactly constitutes a seizure for the for the constitutional uh, question? You know, sometimes we get appearance tickets in New York. I imagine there's something similar in other states. OK, so then you show up, you're arraigned. You're released on your own, own recognizance. Well, the court has jurisdiction over you. You're in custody of the court in some theoretical fashion. Are you seized? You are. You were processed at some point. They'll take your fingerprints. Were you seized during that uh, part of the process? Uh, if that's not enough, being released under under your own recognizance, if the court sets nominal bail of a dollar or ten dollars, are you in custody of the court and therefore in custody? At that point, um, what, what does it mean to be seized for, for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment? Typically, you only need a show of force, right, um, for, for Fourth Amendment seizure. So exactly what that would mean in this context, if it's a pro forma seizure, I, I'm not quite sure. And that was glossed over, and it was a, an interesting question that I don't think was fully um, presented squarely in the case. But like, like so many uh, Supreme Court cases, this one's going to have litigation for years to come. Well, we've got a couple of really interesting questions from audience members here, so let me turn to that. This is from Andrew Yurcho. Does the panel think prosecutors intentionally do not address the matter of innocence when dismissing a case in order to attempt to avoid the malicious prosecution problem? I can start. 
I, I don't know that that we think prosecutors do that, but um, from my perspective, the indications of innocence rule at least incentivized prosecutors to to consider to consider it, and and that that was that was a problem with with the indications of innocence rule. Um, Vincent, I know you addressed earlier the ethical obligations of prosecutors, so this doesn't relate to that. <laughs> it, it sort of relates. I, I'm, I mean, I certainly don't. Um, I'll probably, uh, maybe I get in trouble for saying this. I, I would say if you poll most of the prosecutors in this building, they they probably haven't heard of Thompson versus Clark, even though I, I wrote the amicus in the case, right? Um, I, I think that for the most part, they're staying within their lane um, on criminal prosecution and aren't really all that much aware of, of civil prosecution and what it entails. Um, so uh, to, to the extent that they're blissfully unaware of what occurs later, absolutely not. To the uh, extent that there are prosecutors who are aware of it, uh, I would certainly hope not. I don't, I don't think that they would do that to avoid it. Um, if anything, uh, ethically, most of the time, Again, because most of the time we're we're dismissing for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the strength of the case, it would behoove them to put on the record exactly why they're they're dismissing the case. I think most of the time prosecutors don't put on the record why they're dismissing the case, uh, because if they did that in every single case, they'd be in court for a few more hours. Okay, we have a kind of very uh, technical, but uh, I think thought-provoking question here from Lawrence Joseph. He notes Mr. Thompson was arrested but never indicted. Does the presence of an indictment enter the analysis? And if so, is there any inconsistency with Cayley versus U.S. 571 U.S. 320 from 2014 uh, regarding the impermissibility of undermining a grand jury's indictment? It's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, how does indictment or not indictment affect the analysis? Yeah, I I don't think it really would affect the analysis, I, I haven't thought about it, um, so this is just um, my initial thoughts, um, but um, an indictment would, under the Supreme Court's so far suggestions, that, that would be the start of legal process. And so if if a civil lawsuit was undermining the the initiation of of legal charges, of criminal charges through an indictment, uh, that would be this kind of so-called malicious prosecution claim. Um, and, and I think all the same requirements uh, would, would exist, whether legal process is started through an indictment, through a judge's finding of probable cause, or, or through an information and just a prosecutor bringing charges. Um, any, any one of those will, is the initiation of, of, legal proceedings. And so if if a person is seized pursuant to those legal proceedings, that is what gives rise to this unlawful seizure, unlawful seizure claim. Oh, Vincent, did you want to comment on that one? No, I think I agree with Marie on that one. Yeah. And I guess one of the other things that occurs to me is there seems to be this question about the malicious prosecution tort. Maybe we should discuss the history and basis for that. And um, I assume that instances of people prevailing on that are very rare. Um, but on the other hand, certainly you can imagine and, and also maybe talk about the what is the um, relationship between looking at this versus immunity for judges or even legislators. I mean, but 
Are, are there limits to that immunity from the standpoint of, you know, some of you may remember in Pennsylvania, this judge who took bribes to from from uh, interests in terms of uh, the juvenile lockups that and then send kids to to them. And, you know, if a prosecutor again, this is I mean, uh, certainly one would think this is this is uh, certainly very rare. Uh, but if a prosecutor either, you know, fabricated evidence or uh, we, there have been cases, certainly I'm aware of where prosecutors uh, did um, withhold intentionally even ex- exculpatory evidence or, you know, um, literally, you know, made things up. Uh, if that type of thing does happen, if if you don't believe in the malicious prosecution, tort, then would you argue the remedies are, you know, professional discipline and perhaps um, disbarment or, you know, that sort of thing? So I guess I think it might be helpful to just kind of get each of your perspectives on what the scope of the malicious prosecution tort should be or is and whether, it, you know, that should exist as a, uh, a legitimate tort. I'm happy to go first on this one. So, so first, I, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying I don't necessarily believe in the malicious prosecution tort, and and maybe that I don't even necessarily believe in it as a legitimate constitutional claim. Um, there have been suggestions that maybe the malicious prosecution tort would fit more squarely within due process under the Fourteenth Amendment. I, I do, however, when I you know read and then now reread preparing for this panel uh justice alito's dissent i I have to say i mean he really makes a a pretty strong argument saying it doesn't really fit squarely within the fourth amendment as far as applying it to prosecutors again i think this goes back to history of prosecutors um the malicious prosecution tort comes exists prior to prosecutors existing or at least public prosecutors existing um and so it's it's a tort that uh, existed prior to the idea of absolute immunity for prosecutors, um, which exists at, I think the first time uh, I've seen it is 1895. Um, this idea of prosecutors acting as quasi-judicial officials. Um, I, I do think that is a very, very important doctrine. Um, and I do think it's one that actually is is very helpful to the defense, uh, believe it or not, it allows prosecutors to act without fear or without favor, right? Those, those are the terms we always say that we want to do, right? Is act without fear and without favor. If we're always looking over our shoulders to say, well, if I dismiss this case, um, I might get sued because, well, that's, that's essentially uh, laying down and saying there wasn't probable cause in the first place or the case couldn't be proven in the first place, or if I lose this case, I'm, I, I could get sued. That actually cabins our discretion on both sides. One, we're not gonna take cases that are a little bit harder um, to prove, even if we're convinced that the person committed that crime. Um, on the other side, we're not gonna be dismissing easy cases because it opens us up to the same liability that it opens these cops up to who are arresting folks on on probable cause. Um, Because again, nobody wants to get sued and nobody wants to get sued, you know, 10 times a week, which is what would happen to prosecutors, especially with what prosecutors are paid. Uh, Certainly here in, in New York and nationwide, as I understand it. I think you'd see fewer prosecutors. I think you'd see fewer good prosecutors. And I think you'd see fewer cases being, uh, especially fewer harder cases. 
being uh, taken on. I worry especially about domestic violent cases in, in that context, because those are the cases that I see the most that are apt to fall apart, where, you know, the police show up and there's a victim who, you know, has the black eye and swears up and down, here's what happens. And then a week and a half later, we're sending a Brady letter because the victim has recanted. The police, the prosecutors are all going to be thinking twice if if there's no qualified immunity, no um, absolute immunity. In our case, we're all going to be thinking twice about, okay, do I even initiate these charges if there's a malicious prosecution tort that'll get me sued for dismissing it or sending that Brady letter? I, I agree with Marie quite strongly that even though we have our ethical obligations and even though I think almost to a man, right? Uh, we take them seriously. The reason you hear about those prosecutors who are fabricating evidence or, or withholding evidence or really falling down on their ethics is because they're the exception, not the rule. But I agree strongly with Marie that we should be encouraging uh, what we want prosecutors to do and not discouraging. I, I actually think that um, the absolute immunity allows us to do that in most cases. I'll respond a little bit. Um, I think in this case and in a lot of the circuit cases addressing these kinds of claims, the term malicious prosecution is used quite loosely to refer to two, what I see as two different types of claims. Um, we have one claim like Larry Thompson's that is really challenging um, an unlawful seizure um, that was caused by the wrongful initiation of charges. And then there's another kind of claim that only targets that unlawful initiation of charges or um, charges being brought without probable cause. And that other kind of claim, I think, is is the one with a huge question mark. Uh, Larry Thompson's case pretty well covers the, the kind of claim that's based on an unlawful seizure. But again, these two kinds of claims are just called uh, malicious prosecution claims uh, by the courts generally and and litigants as well. But I think I think it would be helpful um, to be really precise with with uh, how how we describe these claims. Where Larry Thompson's is an unlawful seizure claim, um, a claim for unlawful seizure pursuant to legal process, whereas the other kind of malicious prosecution claim is simply targeting uh, the legal process itself. Um, regardless of any of any seizure. And it's that kind of case that, you know, perhaps the due process clause is, is a better house for it um, because it doesn't depend on a seizure. And, you know, to the extent prosecutorial immunity um, historically would not apply to malicious common law, malicious prosecution claims, that's that's a reason to question whether prosecutorial immunity should apply to to that kind of constitutional claim, um, possibly under the due process clause. Uh, but again, these are these are just questions that are now um, coming to the forefront. Uh, whereas before before this case, I think many courts and litigants were just um, loosely calling multiple kinds of claims malicious prosecution torts. And, and it would be helpful to kind of separate them out. And I think this case will help to do that. Well, we're um, getting close to the end of our time here, but I wanted to certainly invite each of you to make final comments and also wanted to 
kind of put the question, uh, getting back down to the uh, the plaintiff, Mr. Thompson himself, what do you envision transpiring uh, with this case being remanded? And um, I think going back to your comments, Marie, which I assume you would agree with Vincent, that in the um, if in fact it's it's the situation where his only remaining claim is malicious prosecution, then obviously there's a very high bar uh, to establish that given um, the the immunity, which is based on, you know, uh, some really good policy reasons why uh, we would only want prosecutors to be liable uh, for intentional you know, misconduct at a minimum and not simply, you know, making a minor error or something. And I guess that will, the factual development will continue on that. But, but it's, I guess there's a decent chance that, um, or maybe even much more than that, that even though Mr. Thompson ends up winning a pretty significant Supreme Court case, he may, um, sadly, I think, given to all of his, um, all he was put through, that he may end up walking away you know, without any compensation. Um, so I'm just hoping each of you could, and again, regardless of like the legal or policy merits, uh, just, you know, obviously from a human perspective, if if uh, it's a situation where maybe there should be a compensation fund, maybe there's another remedy that is not even uh, a, a one involving litigation for someone, regardless of the degree to which a prosecutor or a judge or somebody else or police is at fault, that somebody had real uh, injuries, especially in a case where someone might've been um, seriously injured, which, you know, wasn't the case with Mr. Thompson, but how do we kind of, how do you all envision this unfolding and particularly, um, you know, consider also if, if in fact, uh, someone in Mr. Thompson's shoes had, had had, you know, disabling injuries, for example. Um, I'm happy to go, go sure. for a minute. Larry Thompson is going to have an uphill battle um, on remand. He's going to have to prove the lack of probable cause. He's going to have to prove that uh, the police officer's uh, report caused him to be unreasonably seized. And I think there's uh, I think there's an open question about whether he's going to have to prove malice um, as well. That was a requirement of common law malicious prosecution. Um, as far as what other kinds of remedies could he seek, um, he he could have, I believe, sought some uh, damages remedy under New York state law. Um, I don't believe he pursued um, possible claims that he had. And in general, uh, litigants can, of course, bring parallel state and federal um, claims. And they should also be looking to state constitutional law. You know, even if the fourth Amendment doesn't house this kind of um, this kind of claim. Uh, perhaps the state constitution would, and um, you know, I, I don't know if many state high courts have addressed the question of whether their similar proceedings house um, or would support th this kind of claim under other um, under their state civil rights statutes as well, enabling statutes or not. But it's a place to look. For, for ways to provide remedies. Um, and state legislatures can, can provide them, I believe, more easily than, than Congress. Well, thank you again for having me, Mr. Levin. Thank you to the Federalist Society. It's, uh, I said at the beginning, before we started, this is sort of a bucket list item for me, so it, it's really fun. I think, yeah, it's gonna be an uphill battle, uh, especially with qualified immunity. Uh, I'm, maybe it wasn't clearly established before this this case, although I think he did uh, uh, since he's the uh, plaintiff here. 
obviously he can still bring it even against the police officer. The police officer instituted the uh, the charges by filing those charges. Um, I'm not sure that the um, the state remedy would help him. It all depends on whether or not he preserved his state remedy by filing a notice of claim under New York law. Uh, I wouldn't know it wasn't mentioned in the in the case law or in the case itself. And you know, whether or not he did that, there's very tight uh, procedural restrictions here in New York and something like that. But more broadly, I think I agree with the premise of your question anyway, that we, we do need to do a better job of addressing these sorts of uh, issues. I actually analogize in my mind with the exclusionary rule. We're, we're the only country that has an exclusionary rule. And again, one of the things I always challenge my paralegal students on is, okay, we've got the exclusionary rule, the police search your house illegally and they don't find anything. What's your remedy, right? Um, I, I think that maybe what we should be doing is punishing bad cops. I'm not saying these cops are bad necessarily, that remains to be seen, but we should be punishing bad cops and uh, maybe not having, maybe section 1983 has outlived its usefulness. Maybe there's a better way to do it. Not quite sure what it is, but I, I don't know that section 1983 is the way to do it. Well, it looks like we're hitting the bottom of the hour here. So I'm going to send it back to Jenny. And I want to thank everyone and um, encourage all of you to tune in to future Federal Society teleforums. Yes, thank you. And I just want to echo on behalf of the Federal Society, uh, thank you to our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank also our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.